0: Well, the woke revolutionaries on Twitter are gunning for James Lindsay. He's a mathematician. He's an academic prankster. It's not quite the right word. He's brilliant. James Lindsay Lindsay does not care. He's moved beyond caring about academic radicals who bully anyone they disagree with. And they disagree with most of us. The last time we had James Lindsay on this podcast, he was a little different than he is now. He still cared about trying to find a way to reason with the bullies of woke liberalism. Uh, But his new book doesn't give me much hope that that's going to happen. It is a groundbreaking book. It's called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everyone. This is a must-own book. Go out or just go online and order it right now. You'll see why after this interview. Um, These days, uh, James is spending much of his time fighting the cult of critical theory, translating the language of the woke and math now into plain English. In 1984, George Orwell wrote, Freedom is the freedom to say two plus two make four. If that is granted, all el- all else follows in a world that is becoming more and more. 1984, by the day, James is a very brave man willing to stand up and say, yeah, two plus two does not equal five. Five. Mm-hmm. So, James, I, I want to really concentrate um, on the book, uh, Cynical Theories, uh, because I don't think people and we've talked about it before. I don't think people really understand what's happening. Um, they're being duped by a lot of things. Um, and, and really, in a way, you know, in America, it is always this way. Our Achilles heel is I think our willingness to just live and let live and, you know, just let people, and I don't believe that, but that's okay. And we're in a different time now. Um, they've used that against us. And now we're just at the very beginning of seeing how dangerous and literally deadly this will be.
1: Yep. That is, <laughs> that is the correct assessment. This is, um, this is not a ideology that we're, we're looking at with everything going on, as we Southerners say, everything going on now. Uh, this is not yeah. an ideology that can tolerate compromise. Right. So live and let live requires a uh, acceptance that there will be compromise. It requires uh, acceptance that there be forgiveness of mistakes and, and, and that the people can work together and that our differences will be our strength, the e pluribus unum. Uh, mm-hmm. Founding concept, the motto of the United States, and uh, as was outlined, kind of ironically, you know, going back into the the forties with with Karl Popper, like outlining outlining the, the the paradox of tolerance. When you are struck with genuine intolerance, too much tolerance becomes a problem, and so the question becomes, of course, how do you tell when it's speech which should be you know protected universally? People's beliefs, pre- people's matters of private uh, conscience are their own. But when the uh, popper says, when they when they bring out the knives, when they bring out the guns, that's the point where you absolutely can't tolerate any longer. And the question becomes in, in a realistic sense, and there are different ways to analyze this, what do you do in a, in a society built on tolerance and plurality? What do you do to deal with a genuinely intolerant ideology that won't compromise. And that's the question that we're now facing not in a theoretical way but in a real way, maybe for the first time since the late 1960s.
0: I think it's more serious than the 1960s because it there there doesn't seem to be any anything that is strong standing against it. We still had some universities and some and some professors and scientists and everything else we had some uh, churches uh, that understood exactly what was going on. We had a society that was at the end of understanding the importance of the Constitution, but we we recognized the Constitution and we saw this this uh double speak um uh, and Orwellian kind of world coming from the Soviet Union. We don't have any of that. Right. Now. We have nothing. Right. I, the the brakes have been taken
1: off of the train and right. it's rolling down the hill. That's where we right. are now. And um, the, the primary way that it's taken the brakes off of the train is by making things about matters of, of identity and thus bigotry, which are – Um, so sensitive for so many people that they would rather, um, just roll over and maybe even hand over the keys to their way of life than be caught up in association with bigotry. And so this is, this is the, the way that they figured out how to remove the brakes from the same kind of thing that was attempted in the 1960s. There was a major summit for liberation as they call it in 1967, we saw the, uh, rollout of riots. And Mm -hmm. violence through late 1967 and 1968 that was largely informed by Herbert Marcuse, uh, the neo-Marxist who started the so-called new left. And he's the one that led the charge toward identity politics. And now we've had 50 years of that line of thought ripening. Plus, as we document in in the book that you mentioned, uh, the adoption of postmodernism so that it no longer has any tether to the truth. It's all about feelings. So if somebody accuses somebody of bigotry or racism or sexism or homophobia, or you name you name it, there are so many that even Judith Butler, one of their scholars, called it that exasperated, etc. Hmm. Uh, if you accuse somebody of it, that's a wholly subjective determination. And if you say, where's the evidence that racism is happening, say in our school, in our institution, at NASA, if you say, Where's the evidence that, that racism is happening here, they say The evidence is my lived experience and that you think we need more evidence than that is just proof that you're racist and that it's actually a racist system to ask for evidence because it denies the realities of my lived experience. And by having moved the entire question into matters of lived experience on something as sensitive as bigotry in our society, which tries to be open and tolerant and and pluralistic and and welcoming and inclusive and diverse – They've removed the brakes from the train that, that would drive the revolution.
0: So, James, I've been saying for a long time, there's going to come a point where you won't recognize your country. Um, and some people found that during the Kavanaugh hearings where they were like, wait, 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 how is this happening? What you you know, wh- where is the evidence? I'm I'm open minded. And if he's doing those kinds of things, but we don't just convict somebody like that without anything and people thought the world was upside down that was a year ago that's a playground state that's like mcdonald's playground compared to where we are right now i can't even imagine 12 months from now um are are you are you seeing any slowdown is there are there and we can get into these i know you have a great answer for how to fight it but Are you seeing anything on the horizon that makes you feel better that maybe we're going to slow down on this? I see a grassroots movement waking up,
1: and that is the most interesting and hopeful thing. I also... Am hearing from more and more people who are within business, within industry, within education, within universities, within the nonprofit sector, within the activist sector that has pushed for many even progressive left changes in society, all saying, wait a minute, this has all gone too far. Um I wrote an article a while back, I guess two months ago, called The Woke Breaking Point, and I, I compelled people in that article to think for yourself, maybe if you're out there and you're listening and you're, you're you're somewhat progressive or you think this is, you know, a movement that has the best interests of certain you know vulnerable people at heart and you have sympathies toward it. You, you need to wrestle with yourself and you need to take this to your friends and rest, get your friends to wrestle with it and your family and, and anybody else that you can reach is that, that, that supports it. You have to wrestle with where is the line that's too far? What does it look like? And you have to understand mm-hmm. that psychologically, we have to see that line before we cross it in order for this to be effective. Right. Because what happens is, you know, something happens that we normally wouldn't tolerate. Then we end up going and we get in a culture war on Twitter or whatever, and we rationalize something unacceptable.
0: And so, as what is long the as you haven't, so what is the line for you? Give me, give me, give me some cross. I mean, <laughs> I crossed my line in in 2013
1: or so when I saw my intellectual heroes getting called sexist for things that had nothing to do with sexism. And then that's when I realized something wrong was happening here. And when I asked questions, I got the academic literature, uh, sociological, they called it, but it's not actually sociological definition of systemic sexism, then systemic racism. And I said, well, here we have two definitions. Why are we not trying to be clear? Why are we muddying the water and using these like they're interchangeable when they mean different things? And for me, that was my breaking point. And that was that was seven years ago. Mm. Uh, Kavanaugh, I actually heard from somebody yesterday that the Kavanaugh hearing was his breaking point. When he saw that, he said that, that that's it. A lot of people, though not many on the left, when Donald Trump was elected and we saw the emergence of a so-called hashtag resistance and we saw marches for abstract concepts like women, and with, with no particular policy goals in mind, with no, particular, just a women's march right. for what to, to resist Donald Trump and his existence. And then the, particularly, I've heard many people say the movement of, quote, not my president, where all of a sudden a duly elected president, according to the uh, Constitution, was considered illegitimate right. based on who he was. That was a lot of people's breaking point. Um, the recent I've heard hundreds, if not thousands of people that the recent, you know, month or two month long fracas on Twitter over whether two plus two equals four or five was a lot of people's breaking point where they so, said, OK, if they're willing to throw out objective truth, that's too far. Yeah, that's too far. So even basic mathematics, science, um, I shared a thing on, on Twitter this morning. Uh, it's actually old. I've seen it before about a project to decolonize light saying that the way that we've studied light has been wholly from a scientific perspective and other perspectives on light aren't considered legitimate as science. <laughs> and so we have to decolonize light. And this is real. This was funded. I think this is Canadian, um, but it was funded by their government to to support this line of research. And so when people see things like that or when they see uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi, the how to be anti-racist yeah. book author, getting invited to speak at NASA recently, last week. That was too far for some people. When they see today, Jack on Twitter announced that he's giving Ibram Kendi and his uh, Anti-Racist Policy Institute at Boston University $10 million. That was some people's woke breaking point. A lot of times though, it's going to be personal. It'll be when somebody that they love gets fired, gets canceled, gets pilloried, gets called a racist illegitimately, like it was for me. My intellectual heroes got called sexist when they weren't sexist. And I said, something's wrong here. So it'll be something for everybody, but people need to find out what it is and they need to, to get their friends to, to, to deal with it and say, you know, if they tear down a statue, a lot of people should have said if they ever tear down a statue of George Washington, it's gone too far. And a lot of people didn't. And they tore down a statue of George Washington and a lot of people rationalized
0: it. Let me um, uh, let me tell you one of the more frightening things that uh, I've done recently is. Um While I was on vacation, I read 1984 again and I haven't I haven't read 1984 since I don't know, I was in high school or whenever. Um, And I remember reading it then and it being a really good book. But you had to you had to kind of, uh, you know, play into it and give it a little more credibility. And you could think of when I read it, you could think of the Soviet Union or whatever. This thing read like a newspaper. It read yeah. like today's newspaper in America, and it was hair raising, which brings me to the two plus two equals five. You 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 released a Twitter storm uh, that just I mean, it, it became like a category five hurricane where you were mocking two plus two equals five. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And You. All of a sudden, saw all of these people backing that up and arguing that you're right. Two plus two isn't four.
1: That's right. It's even today. While while I was waiting to sit down with you, I was checking my Twitter and seeing that one of the most um, prestigious mathematicians in the world, one of the most accomplished mathematicians in the world, a Fields Medalist, was still arguing about how two plus two doesn't always have to equal four. And so this this is happening. It all started where somebody had asked me to explain how would this ideology, the the critical social justice or woke ideology, think about something like two plus two? Would they say it's four? Would they say it's five? Would they say it's three? Would they say it's something else? And I said, the answer is that it would say, that is that they would say that it doesn't matter what two plus two equals, but that we should be suspicious of the answer four, because that's a hegemonic narrative that came from white supremacy. And so I made this card that I put on Twitter. I call them woke minis. And I put them just little satirical quips and little pretty cards. And I put them out on, on Twitter. And it said something to the effect of two plus two equals four is a perspective in white Western mathematics that excludes other possible values or marginalizes other possible values, maybe. And so this... Kind of just was funny. And then somebody ended up tagging the creator of the 1619 project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, with it Mm -hmm. about a month later. And then she tried to make fun of it by saying that I had used Arabic numerals for two and four. And (laughs) she said, that's so damn classic. And she made fun of it. Well, this ends up within a few days, it had tapped into this massive movement. So this is actually not just a Twitter fight. It tapped into this massive movement. To change our education in terms of ethnic studies. This is already the law in Washington. It's already the law in California. It just passed in California. Uh, in California now, they no longer are going to be teaching just history. They are now going to be teaching what they call herstory. Where they- My head hurts. And they H-E-R to H-X-R. H-X-R story. Instead of history. And so this is working its way into the education system of New York. This is three, of course, very blue states, but it will go to others. This is the objective to change our education system. And so one of the reformers, if we'll call them that, one of these activists trying to change our education systems in Washington, the secretary director of their program there, uh, tweeted, Wow. You know, somebody had gotten into the two plus two equals five thing. And she said, wow, there's this line of attack against my ethnic studies program in Washington mathematics saying that it would mean two plus two equals five. How can we turn this into a true statement? That's what she said. How can we turn two plus two equals five into a true statement? And now that was at the very beginning of July. Here we are in mid to late August And ever since, it's been raging for people to try to turn two plus two equals five into a true statement. And the reason is because they want to, and they've said this explicitly, I'm not just interpreting. They want to undermine the idea of objectivity and mathematics so that you can't trust your own senses, just like in 1984. You can't trust your own reason, just like in 1984. You have to listen to them. They will tell you what two plus two equals, when it equals four, when it doesn't equal four, because two plus two equals doesn't matter. But we should be suspicious of the white supremacist answer for
0: you should, and they
1: want to set themselves up as the arbiters of what is true and false for everybody
0: you need to read an article that i just read this morning in forbes and it was um doing your own research may be deadly and it mm. was that no one even some scientists by themselves no one is qualified to give you the truth unless you're an expert in that particular field. And so that right. y- y- people should no longer do their own homework. No matter how hard you try, you will never come up with the right answer because you don't know even the questions to ask. That's the most um enslaving idea i think i've ever heard yeah it's a complete
1: perversion of the idea of expertise uh expertise is supposed to to mean that somebody has studied the proper uh methods or the the proper material to be able to be more likely to render a correct opinion not because not that they automatically will right and that everybody therefore must trust them uh, the the liberal principle, meaning philosophically liberal, like our constitution, when applied to knowledge, is that we have checking of each by each. Mm-hmm. Science works because anybody, anybody, it could be some teenager in his basement fooling around with his chemistry set, could overturn the the biggest Nobel Prize-winning scientist by saying, "Wow, the experiment says you made a mistake." So you are correct. This is the exact opposite of 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 what leads us to truth what leads us to knowledge and what prevents us from falling into the tyranny of people who i have on 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 twitter i've just started calling them our betters uh, in a very sarcastic satirical way oh our betters have said this oh our betters think of us this way this is what our betters say and i mean you know me i'm not not exactly a right-wing populist (laughs) but this this is this is the sentiment though that has to rise up from everybody who's not already captured by this mindset is that these people are attempting to appoint themselves philosopher kings who are going to rule us because they know better than us and that we we can't do the experiment for ourselves the other one that's when you were telling me about forbes i was thinking of how many things i've seen where they're trying to make homeschooling illegal or now they're trying to with the with the coronavirus where we're all having to, you know, a lot of school is going to be virtual. It's going to be via by the web. And I just saw, just saw an article minutes ago that was talking about how a school system, and I don't know where I'd have to actually look into it more closely, but a school system is requiring parents to sign forms saying that they won't watch what the teachers are doing with the kids in their own homes. And You know, you had the guy at Harvard saying that homeschooling should be illegal. The children are literally wards of the state and therefore they need this state education. And all of these people are now arguing that homeschooling is racist. It's a way for racists to keep – Making racist children and to to perpetuate the ideologies of white supremacy, and there's a real threat that this could win. I keep hearing people say, "Well, if this keeps up in our schools, I'm going to homeschool." And I'm, I keep thinking, if if you don't fight back now, that in a year that you won't,
0: you won't be able to homeschool. You won't have to. Yeah, it'll be illegal. You want to know the secret to staying sweat free this summer? Tommy John's Ultra Breathable Underwear and Bras. I'm wearing one of their bras right now, and my breasts are breathing like they've never breathed before. They have a range of summer-ready, breathable options, but their Cool Cotton underwear for men and women is like having your own on-body A.C. Tommy John's Cool Cotton, made from premium natural Pima cotton for enhanced airflow, it evaporates sweat super fast, keeping you drier, cooler, and more comfortable than regular cotton. And if you want to add some chill to your cheeks when the summer heats up... Choose Tommy John Cool Cotton Underwear. All of Tommy John's layers are built for next level comfort, whether you're on the hunt for lounge pants or, you know, lazy day joggers or the softest Zoom ready tees and polos. It's Tommy John. They have you covered. Upgrade to Tommy John today with uh, enhanced designs that are super breathable and way more comfortable than anything else out there. It is Tommy John. Right now, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment is needed. For a limited time, go to tommyjohn.com/back and get 20% off your first order. They keep shape and Tommyjohn.com slash Beck for 20% off Tommyjohn.com slash Beck. James, you know that I I built the blaze years ago um, because I was in the system. I worked for CNN and then I worked for Fox and I saw it's the same game. It's the same game. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted an independent voice that no one could ever squelch. Depending if things move as quickly as they are moving right now, I'm not sure that I have a voice left in 2021. And and a lot of people go, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not alone in that. I've talked to some of the biggest uh, broadcasters and some of the biggest people on on YouTube and uh, online, and they're all saying the same thing. I'm not sure we're going to be able to say things next year. Right. Yeah, it's it's actually very
1: concerning. And there are very realistic mechanisms. I don't think a lot of people we've been, this is a problem we talk about in, in cynical theories is that a lot of people have become comfortable with liberalism, again, in the not left, right, American politics, but the broad constitutional sense. And so they don't, not only do they not are, have the ability to articulate clear defenses of what it is, and, and reasons that people should stand up for it. They also have come to take it for granted. And they can't think of how a system like ours could become illiberal mm. um, even while while models for such things are are happening in the world
0: today the, I mean, the social credit system i don't understand our model i don't know how people don't see it happening here right now how are people still duped when people say oh what rights have you lost are you kidding me are you not seeing the handwriting i feel like uh, a jew in germany who's like I, I don't know maybe we should get out of here no there's nothing to worry about i mean this is how it happens uh yeah i've actually
1: had the same feeling and the problem is is that all of the western democracies of course not all of which exist in the west but all all of the the, the advanced democracies in the world are going to be subjected to this yes too there there it's like there's where no do place you to escape run. Yeah. Where can you go? Because this is um, this ideology is uniquely parasitic. It is modeled to it, it is designed to, to model itself after whatever it attaches itself to. So if it gets into the Republican Party, it'll speak the Republican Party language and will twist the words, twist the policies and, and subvert. That's actually the term that they use for their, their activism, subversion. It will subvert the thing. From within. People say, oh, well, there's contracts, or there's the constitution, or there's the first amendment, or there's this, or there's that. You change the word, if you change the meanings of the words, then you change the contract without changing a single word in it. You change the meaning of the words, and the constitution doesn't mean the same thing anymore. And it doesn't it doesn't protect you at all. And so this is what's happening. So when we come back, not to drag back to two plus two. But this was one of the literal – this is the main argument that's being made that 2 plus 2 doesn't always equal 4 is that, well, if you change the meaning of 2 or if you change the meaning of plus or if you change the meaning of equals or if you change the meaning of 4, one person even said explicitly – now, this isn't a person of any significance but one person even says explicitly that if we just allow the symbol 2 and the symbol 4 to mean completely different things or the symbol 5 to mean completely different things, then two plus two equals five is a true statement automatically. We just change the meaning of the symbols and then the, new, the, the statement is it means whatever they want it to mean. But when you, this seems silly and funny or whatever, but it's very serious because if you change the meaning of the words in the Constitution, the Constitution now means something different and you have no protections left. If you change the meaning of the words in your contracts, your contract means something different and now you can be held to something you never signed up for. And this is a real threat and this is actually how this ideology operates because it's so concerned with the power of language that it manipulates at that level and it's able to therefore enter into anything and subvert the thing itself by changing the way that that, that the language that that – whether it's a community, whether it's an organization, whether it's a company, whether it's a government – whether it's an individual relationship, how all of the language used by those people, uh, how, that, how that takes on meaning, that all gets changed. And then it has all the power by making you, you think in its terms.
0: You know, I used to just think this was, excuse the expression, mental masturbation of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of naming and necessity. Uh, Saul Kripke wrote, a wheel is only a wheel because we call it a wheel. And I thought that's the biggest waste of time, um, in my opinion. That's a useless mm-hmm. philosophy for me. But that's yes. really not useless anymore. They have found a way to make the naming uh, and the necessity of naming really a powerful weapon. That's right. So
1: that's ultimately what we wrote Cynical Theories to track was how did that happen? Because we know that this, and it was mental masturbation, really, had this this postmodern idea of putting everything in, the, in, in the, the world of language. We take Jacques Derrida and we say, oh, he said all the words exist in discourses and discourses are kind of like webs of words where meaning is connect, you know, the meaning of any one word is, is actually defined in terms of its relationship to other words. So if I say dog, we have to think things like animal, we might think canine, we might think carnivore or omnivore, I guess, for dogs. Uh, we might think, um, we also have to think plants because plants are not animals. We have to think cat, because a cat is an animal that's not a dog. We have to think in terms of things that that dogs are and are not. So all of the words are in just in relationship to other words, and meaning is completely deferred. You can't say dog and point to a dog and anybody actually understand you. That was the point he was making. And in the same token, you can't read a text and understand what the author intended you you can only understand the, the 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 words in relationship to the other words on the paper and in terms of how those words mean something to you and so you, you, you take that, and it, that's his post-structural deconstruction mm-hmm. idea. And so then you take that, and you combine that with with Michel Foucault. Oh, power works through everybody, and power is generated by what we validate as knowledge and what we don't. And to talk about truth and falsity misses the point that it's politics that decide what's true, and politics that decide what's false, and that constrains people and their potentialities of being. And so you had a whole generation of A generation and a half of kind of worthless academics just doing this screwy stuff with language that didn't make any sense. And as you said, it's mental masturbation. And then what happened is in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, a bunch of literally radical activists, properly radical activists who wanted to change society in exactly the way that Marx laid out, figured out how to use those rhetorical tricks to take apart everything they consider to be dominant in society, while uh, safeguarding everything they decided to be their own interests, and so they learned how to twist that postmodern language game, which that's what they actually referred to as language games, to their to their advantage for for real effective activism. And so these people, the, this handful of of activists in the in the late nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties who were deeply informed from the Frankfurt School of Neo Marxism, uh, <laughs> the black feminists, the radical feminists, these these people who were deeply informed in, in in those regards figured out how to play postmodern language games to remove the necessity of truth and falsity from their their, their work at all. They no longer had to be constrained by the truth. They no longer had an obligation to tell the truth or to define the truth or to look for the truth or to communicate the truth. In fact, they were able to recast, and this is famously in a paper by, I think her name was Kelly Oliver in 1989, uh, that, that it was no longer a necessity to be concerned with true theories or false theories, but only politically useful theories. And so the idea of true and false following Foucault became political. The idea that meaning cannot be found uh, by pointing to the world, but only in how words relate to one another gave them language games that came from Derrida. And the next thing you know, these radical activists who were the same ones that rose up in the 60s that we were talking about earlier had the means to take the brakes off the train and
0: run it down the track anyway. So, James, what is the... I mean, because it's it's it. You're just making imbeciles out of people. You're 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 creating the situation that the Soviet Union had, where they couldn't grow a crop, they couldn't make a timepiece that could actually keep time. Um, and when you can't make a timepiece, you really can't do a lot of things. Um, what is the goal of the people? I mean. Are they just evil? How did they how do they see good coming out of this? So it's complicated. There are, of course,
1: one, the people who are more cognizant of how this is a very explicit kind of revolution in the way that you are talking about. But I think the majority are sincere, to be honest with you. Most people don't agree with me on this, but I, I do think that the majority of the even the scholars are very sincere and they've been convinced By as South Park put it, by smelling their own farts for (laughs) now a very long time, by getting too lost in the theories. I mean, we have that saying, you know, an idea so stupid that only an academic could believe it, Mm -hmm. or something like that. And so they they've convinced themselves. That oppression really did come from this the system. I hear people all the time who say that, you know, well, I used to think about things this way, and then I studied, say, critical race theory, or I studied even Marx Marxist theory. And then I had to learn to think in systems. And now that I think in systems, I see how it's the system itself that everything has to be torn down. And so they believe that if they can get all of the problems out of the system, if they can unmake the problematic system, that the utopia is sure to follow that everything, all the, they, they, they believe that the problems, all the problems of society come from the fact that dominant groups create the problems. They've completely lost the, lost all perspective of, of anything else. And I think that the majority of the people doing this are in fact, in some sense, what would be called useful idiots. They don't realize that mm-hmm. their theory is bad. They don't realize, That there's a giant non sequitur. It's the same non sequitur, but in a different context that Marx had. Marx laid out his great theory about the failures of liberal societies, of capitalist societies. And he wasn't wrong about everything, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, He he was able to identify some real points, in particular, the groupishness of people and the way that society stratifies and sees themselves as, as class groups for Marx or identity groups as we see it now. And that this has real meaning for people and they act in that way. But his belief was, well, if you just wake everybody up to this, everything will be perfect. And there was no mechanism by which that was supposed to work. There was no actual economic theory that would explain how this is supposed to work out in practice. And so then what you get is people who have to start denying the truth when it doesn't work, then to get increasingly brutal to force people to go along with it. And then, as you pointed out, to make them dysfunctional. To make them, they don't have timepieces at work. I talked to a systems expert, if you want to talk about systemic things, uh, a, a systems expert recently who was telling me about his own research. One of the things that he had done uh, years ago without any knowledge of this particular question was what happens if you just desynchronize, You say you have a functional organization, you did a computer model, and you just desynchronize people's clocks so that on average mm-hmm. people are, are a little bit late to every meeting. Mm-hmm. They miss deadlines by a little bit. And then they had built a slider on it. And so what happens is that the, the drop off in productivity is not anywhere near as slow as you might think it is. You slide that thing a little bit. You desynchronize people a little bit. You take their time pieces away a little bit. And productivity drops off a cliff. And he said, you don't even have to go very far. And actually the, entire, the productivity of the organization falls to zero very, very quickly. The uh, the entity cannot function just by desynchronizing people to a relatively small degree. So when you talk about building timepieces that don't work, or as we hear about it now, you you can hear about decolonizing time, or you can hear people literally in the state of Washington and then their government who are on video saying things like keeping to a schedule and a meeting agenda is literal white supremacy coming out of my mouth. It is now a I think this it was on the I don't remember if it was on the list the Smithsonian published or not, but they had that horrendous list of things that were white oh, supremacy. Yeah. But it's very common now to see punctuality is a vestige mm-hmm. of white supremacy. But well, if you I remember I have to tell you, it
0: falls apart. I remember I don't remember what city it was in. Um, and I remember telling this story back then. I used to do, believe it or not, at one point before the world got so serious, I was actually I did comedy. And um, uh, we went to this big um, Uh, you know, Fox theater or whatever it was in this Southern city. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so we didn't have the busing. We didn't just, we just didn't have that problem. Um, And uh, so I didn't really understand it. And I remember I walked up and I was talking to the sheriff of the town. I think the mayor of the town was there and the person that was running the theater, the general manager of the theater. And I, we we just chatted for a while and I said, um, I got to uh, I gotta go, and uh, I looked at the theater manager, and I said, and we really like to start on time, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, seated or not, we start. And they all laughed. And one of them said, well, you're on colored standard time down here. And I, I couldn't even process it. I was like, what color? What? Mm. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, you're talking about black people. <laughs> I felt like I was yeah. in heat of the night or something. This is this is exactly what the Smithsonian put out. It was it was just reverse racism. And that's what's happening now in California, where they're trying to take away that you can't discriminate based on race. They believe now that the only way to reverse discrimination is to exact is to do that reverse discrimination and discriminate against those who they say are racists. This is not progress. It takes you back 400 years.
1: Right. And so you can even we mentioned Ibram Kendi, uh, the how to how to be an anti-racist guy who's now bestseller lists all over the place. is speaking to NASA, just got a huge grant from Jack at Twitter. And uh, he explicitly says in his book, which many, many people have been compelled to read now, he explicitly says, explicitly says that if if anti-discrimination creates unequal results, then it's racist and if discrimination creates more equal results then it's anti-racist and that's the impetus behind what's going on in California you have literally people saying we need to start discriminating and they can say some nice thing like oh well we just mean something like affirmative action which you could say is a positive f- discrimination mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to we're going to discriminate in favor of certain groups to try to help them out but because I mean, what does this turn into? You know, there are only so many spots. It's not to say that everything is zero sum, but at some level, this does require negative discrimination against other groups. And you see this very vividly with the now it was at Harvard. And now there's a much bigger scandal about Asians at Mm -hmm. at Yale. Mm-hmm. And then Yale comes out and just like, yep, we're going to keep doing it. You know, Justice Department, whatever. We're just going to keep doing it. And it, it's it's astonishing because there's now the uh, I, I cringe to call it intellectual, but there's now the intellectual architecture in place to justify the unmaking of one of the crowning achievements of American history, which is the Civil Rights Act. Mm mm-hmm. uh, And it's like you said, it's it's like you fell back into the heat of the night. I felt the same way when I was watching the video of this meeting I mentioned in in the Washington State Equity Task Force. So this is, again, state level. This is not a legislative body. This is a administrative state level body that it has been installed. It, it exists. And they literally were talking about how if people, you know, somebody came in late to the meeting, we need to we need to pay attention like they would do in South Africa. And, we need, you know, this kind of slow speech we would do like in South Africa. Hey, how's your family? Let's chat and catch up for 10 or 15 minutes. Then we'll catch you up on what happened in the meeting and we'll delay everything 30 minutes. And she said, well, you know, we need to really work on kind of like South African time. And it's <sighs> just like, Holy crap! What in the world is? I mean, I saw that in January. I was in a hotel, and somebody sent it to me at you know it was like twelve thirty, and I had to give a talk in the next the next day, and it's like I just couldn't stop watching this in boring administrative meeting. I just stared at it for nearly an hour. I couldn't stop watching it, just aghast. And that was in January, and now it's like, oh yeah, that's normal. Uh, that's just how things are now. And so, so it's, it's what,
0: bad. Is, what? 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 For instance, um, in the book, you talk about, um, you know, the fat theories. I think that's what you call fat studies. studies. Just the thumbnail of fat studies here.
1: OK, so, yeah, the the book traces just to kind of give a quick overview, the, what postmodern philosophy is, how it changed in the 1980s and 1990s, as we spoke about. And then it details a number of the specific branches of this new way of thinking, new way of thought. One of them is fat studies. So <laughs> fat studies is... Is not what, uh, so I tell people about this a lot, and they're like, oh, you mean people doing research into like obesity and health? And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> this is not what fat studies is. Fat studies, if we give the thumbnail version, is if you could imagine, you know, almost the most, you know, sketch comedy support group for fat people and then turn that into an academic theory. That's what it is. It denies that the word it only uses the word obesity in scare quotes. It denies that obesity is real. It calls it a medicalizing narrative that is used to uh, induce fat phobia, which is a systemic hatred of fat people, just like homophobia. It's not the fear of fat people. It's a systemic hatred, just like homophobia and that it encourages fat stigma. And so Obesity needs to be taken out of the consideration of the medical field. Your doctor should not be allowed to tell you that obesity is linked to health conditions whatsoever. They shouldn't be allowed to tell you that you're overweight because that assumes that there is a correct weight, which is a hegemonic discourse that excludes fat people from society. And it is an entire effort to essentially remove any expectation that we would be able to talk about being overweight. Or uh, the medical implications of being overweight in any realistic or scientific way. There's only talking about the ways in which uh, people who are overweight are oppressed by a society who doesn't welcome them, who doesn't accommodate them at every turn. So airplane seats, having a standard size, for example, is uh, an example of fat phobia, a hatred of fat people, because... The airplane seat having a standard size is not accommodating the fact that some people are larger, and the fact that there are, you know, seatbelt extensions implies that there's a there's an accurate size, you know, a proper size, and so it's humiliating to have to get a seatbelt extension, and so it's a further way to to embarrass and stigmatize fat people. So fat studies is a, is is a way to stop studying anything to do with being overweight in a realistic way, and to turn it into something like a Um, support group on steroids that believes that society literally hates fat people and is out to get them at every turn and needs to rearrange itself completely to accommodate uh, obesity and to pretend that it doesn't have uh, health-associated risks.
0: So I was having dinner with Vince Vaughn about 10 years ago, and um, we were just talking about uh, our backs. I have a bad back. He has a bad back. And the conversation just kind of meandered into that. And uh, he said, you know, I just I just got my back fixed. She said, I've never felt better. Uh, He said, you know, my wife was always giving me her theories and, you know, why my back was bad. And he said, I didn't listen. And, And he said, so I went and I went to all these doctors. He said, I finally tried acupuncture. He said, have you tried acupuncture? And I said, yeah, it didn't work for me. And he said, well, it did for me. He said, I went to this old Chinese guy in Chicago. And he said, I, you know took my clothes off and I'm laying down and he said, this guy is just ancient. He said, I felt like I was in China. And he said, he came up and he said, you know, they put them in your ears right on the ear in the ears. And he said, so they were poking the pins and he was poking the pins in the ears. And he said, the Chinese guy said, you fat. And he said, I realized my problem was I was overweight. And so I lost weight. Mm. And so his version of acupuncture working was him just having somebody else say what his wife had been saying. You're fat, lose some weight and you'll feel better. Your back will feel better. The point of this is, is all of these studies are dangerous. They are telling. I mean, you tell me if you create a world where Glenn Beck is every right and he should feel good about going and having more ice cream. I will have more ice cream because you're just enabling me to have more ice cream. In my case, I bring my fatness on because I'm lazy. I don't like to work out. You, you have a doctor. Stop telling me to work out. You have a doctor. Stop telling me, hey, stop eating that stuff. It's bad for your your blood pressure. You're killing people. You're killing people. It, it's it's like this. The, these theories and these uh, uh, critical studies. It's like a death cult.
1: It, it is in, in certain regards within fat studies and disability studies in particular. The, there are direct health implications, direct
0: health implications. So and we it, can talk and about. It, and it causes us to deny as well, like for and I don't know if you've heard of this. I'm sure you have the people who say they're born handicapped and they're born with only one arm, but they have both arms. And in Canada, they were debating on whether or not doctors should amputate arms, perfectly good arms. No, man, that's a psychiatric issue. You have two arms. Right. That's right. And and it gets very literally psychiatric
1: as well, because within disability studies, for example, there there is a, it, it, diseases like depression, which can end in suicide, are often characterized as identities and they talk about the depressed community and the depressed identity uh with a capital d and so at that point you no longer try to treat depression you try to lean into your depression and you try to make your depression part of who you are and most importantly because these are critical studies just like with fat studies and this is part of why they deny medical intervention but also here and just with everything else you're supposed to turn your identity into a political a site of political activism, a political identity. So we heard that with the 1619 Project woman, Nicole Hannah-Jones, where she tweeted about people being politically black isn't the same as them being racially black. We have politically fat. One of the things when we did our our grievance studies uh, fake papers, we wrote fat bodybuilding, and it was based off of reading in the fat studies literature. Somebody said that it, it takes time to build a fat body, it takes even more time to build a, a politicized fat body. And I thought that's just the funniest thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> and uh, so that's where fat bodybuilding came from. And so, but this is true though. So now you're supposed to adopt your identity as a means of politics. That old saying, the personal is political, is taken to the absolute extreme. And the point is to do radical identity politics, where you claim that the system is hurting people with my identity. It's an extreme example, but it's true. This actually, um, within fat studies, for example, and it also shows up in disability studies, the doctors encouraging people to lose weight, or if we invented a, a weight loss pill, of course, every pharmaceutical company in the world would love to invent this, that causes people to get to their their ideal weight if they just take this pill. Within fat studies, the such an invention or even the advice of doctors is, is, is construed as, as encouraging a fat genocide because it would make it so there are no fat identities any longer. You see this with the impetus to cure certain um disabilities most frequently deafness it's a deaf genocide to to give people say cochlear implants or other implants that would allow them to hear when they're deaf and so this is this very warped mindset where the identity politics and the uh the the cultural identity of of everything becomes the most important factor and reality becomes basically irrelevant um
0: so, James, I, I uh, you know, I think you were really nervous when the first time you came on my my program, because, I mean, you could you could say a lot of things about me and, and people have said those things. Um, but they're all most of them are cartoon characters and and uh, and inaccurate. But the one thing that is true about me is I'm a I'm a very religious man. I'm open minded and I'm not trying to preach my religion. And, you know, I I know great atheists. Um, uh, And I I, in the last couple of years, I've tried to maybe five years, I've tried to stop using the word evil because it's it's such a powerful word and uh, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think we've just gotten so cavalier with that, with that word Um, However, if you just categorize evil as just destructive, intentionally destructive to the wellness of a species, a planet, whatever, I can't find another word to describe this. I mean, I just. That's right. It's just evil.
1: So I, I, as you know, am not a particularly religious man, Right. but I have many religious friends, uh, some of whom are, are very significant religious people, and I listen to them very seriously. I want to understand how their faith informs their thinking, right. how it informs their life. I want to understand it on those terms. And I do agree that the word evil applies, and so it's it's— one thing where there's the intentional desire to tear apart and destroy, and that is evil. There's another thing where the where, where a person has given into self-centered envy to such a degree that they'll destroy anything so that other people can't have something that they don't have. That's also evil. And so I see this in a very kind of spiritual way uh, that – this movement is—I mean—scratch the surface, and you find that envy. It's always there. Somebody always has there. something that I don't. Right. And the desire to to, to the, the 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 so I don't want to get too theological. Seeing as I've just set myself up as not, not religious, <laughs> no. But. but the truth is, but the truth is that there are a few features of of the character of Satan or of the deceiver uh, that that it is the temptation to obsessing about the self. And then to turn that to not to, oh, how do I improve myself? But how do I tear down that which is against me? that That's a very um, spiritual way to see evil. And that's present here. It is a deep focus inward on the self in a negative way. And then projecting it onto the world. And then the second way, and I think this is very important, is that um, – they seek justice, but in not to, again, get too theological, but right. in the Bible, justice is paired with mercy. Right. And that's what makes God righteous and good. Right. And this is justice with the opposite of mercy. There is no forgiveness. There is no mercy. There is exactly just right.
0: what they consider to be justice. It's French and that's, revolutionary justice.
1: That's right. And when you combine that with the manipulation of language and you remember that the point of the character of Satan is the deceiver— and so people are, are deceiving you with, with their, I mean, it, it's just all there. The, I, I don't subscribe to the theology myself, but I understand the archetypes that it's speaking to. And it's all there. And to consider this to be evil is, as, as, as I think we've spoken about once before, I don't like to use that word. But this is what, this is it. This, this is what evil looks like. Um, and there are other
0: kinds of evil in the world, but this is one and here it is. So, um, what does this society look like and how long do you think it takes us to get to, I mean, it, it, it never stops eating. I mean, it's a, it, it will eat itself. So eventually it destroys itself Um, But when does it get to a place of real oppressive power to where we would recognize it as the former Soviet Union or, you know, the the Nazis or whatever? How far away are we from that? What has to happen? uh, It's very difficult to say how far.
1: But the first instance where a significant institution that we truly depend upon, like our food supply chain. Collapses. That's where it starts to recognize to 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 look like that very quickly. Of course, if people were better students of history, and I don't want to set myself up, up like I am a great student of history, they would recognize that the riots that we're seeing in the cities mm-hmm. mirror uh, incidents in in previous revolutions. Yeah, uh, and especially so they would the cultural
0: revolution this. of China.
1: The cultural revolution of China is is. I mean, this is where you add add Mao's objective was to destroy the four olds. The Mm. the old culture had to be completely removed. And that's exactly what you see now is the status quo. You even see everybody who's, you know, okay, boomer, everybody's a dinosaur. We're going to watch the dinosaurs die. And it was led by the youth who Mao turned into the red guard. And he printed his little red book and it had all of the little communist sayings and the Maoist sayings. And this is what you're seeing in all of this anti-racist literature. Uh, the same kinds of, the same kinds of thought stopping and revolution driving aphorisms like white silence is violence. Uh, these, these, these are the exact kinds of things, you know, white complicity. Now there's brown complicity. Uh, the, these kinds of ideas are, are, have a strong historical precedent in the, the cultural revolution of China. And so. W- I don't. I I don't know how to answer your question. For how do you, how do you recognize it? How will people recognize it? Because I already see it, and I can't not see it at right. this point. And I don't know how other people can't see it. But what what will? I mean, I have a few points. If we talked about woke breaking points earlier, that I think will be unambiguous for large segments of the population. Um, one would be the collapse of a major necessary institution that we actually depend upon for our, our livelihoods. Um, like whether that's. Banks, the economy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Banks, the economy, the food supply chain. I mean, we almost saw that early on with some some shutting down all of the,
0: the meatpacking plants yeah. with with COVID. I, I, so, I think the shutting down of the banks is is I believe it's it could happen between now and spring easily it might take longer than sure. that, but it could happen tomorrow. It could happen, you know, at That's any time.
1: It could happen very soon. And it's very difficult to make predictions about how soon that will be. But there are certain things. Another sign, and I don't know what form this will take as far as getting people's attention. I predicted from the first moments of the riots breaking out in Minneapolis after George Floyd died, I predicted that the sign that would tell the majority of the public that it's time to wake up would be one of two things. It would either be literal marches on the suburbs where they're trying to do, you know, the disruptive nonsense there in people's homes or and this was the more poignant one, police officers swinging from trees and literal lynching. And those things, I
0: think, would actually wake people up. No, the the neighborhood is already happening. There were two neighborhoods last night. Yeah, Yeah. two neighborhoods. Well, then then there are three. Uh, because this week I've I've seen two different neighborhoods where they are literally marching and saying in the middle of the night, wake up, white people, wake up. We're here for it. Another one I saw was the this poor family was just out barbecuing and a white family. And this group was just talking about how they're going to take their house and they're racist. And and the kids were just standing there. And I thought, how how? How do you how do you feel comfortable? How much longer do Americans stand by and take it?
1: So one of the things that people need to understand about the ideology, and um, this was directly from a teaching education conference, but it also comes out of a myriad of their literature. There is actually a statement. There's a concept within their their literature called white comfort. And they say that the idea of white comfort is that uh, white people are comfortable with the racial status quo. And the next follow-up line is, therefore, anything that maintains white comfort is suspect. Mm -hmm. So, this idea of going around and doing that to make people uncomfortable is core to the ideology. And so, it will continue. Anything that makes white people feel comfortable is suspect. And... This is this, I mean, this was this is from Robin D'Angelo, who's now one of the yeah. most recognized figures in our our culture. This is literally one of her ideas. And so this is what's going to continue. And so my question, you know, is actually, a, when do we decide that this is enough? and b, how do we decide that it is enough? And hopefully we decide through the law. And not through Mm. vigilante action. And that's where I actually have the most fear Um, that I really do hope. And, you know, there's a trick here that's being played. And it's that, you know, they've laid this story for so long that Trump is a fascist. That he's, that he's an outright fascist, he's going to take control, he's never going to give up the presidency, it's going to be you know whatever, all these things that they say, and he's a dictator and so on and so forth. And so many people that lean left of center believe this, that we can't even have the police show up to arson or to riots or to the physical beating of a person almost to death in the street. We can't even have the police show up because they'll cry. Ah, oh, the the force of the state is cracking down on peaceful protesters. This is this is fascism in action. Trump's finally enacting his fascism, and people believe it. But the, people believe it.
0: That the, right there is is the issue. The 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 problem with that is is again, it's two plus two equals five. We're being asked to deny what we see. You know, they've made mm-hmm. Trump into this fascist, and and quite honestly. You know, before he was president, I, you know, I was like, something goes wrong. This guy could turn into a dictator like that. But he has resisted every single call for taking over situations, covid, everything he could. They were encouraging him to do it. The left was encouraging and the states, the left states are becoming much more fascistic and they're denying that that's what fascism is right. uh, and and it's protecting good. the protecting just the the average store owner, you know, or yeah. the or the neighborhood. That's now fascist to the left and to yeah. the Democrats. Yeah, they it's a, it's just
1: like two plus two equals five in two ways. One is the. Demand that we deny the re- the reality that we can see with our own eyes. The other is um, the manipulation of language. Two plus two does equal five if we just change what five means. And so or if we change what plus means or if we change what right. equals means. And so here uh, there's a completely different definition of fascism, which if you look into it, the definition of fascism that's in operation is a state that functions. <laughs> that's it. It has police. It has order. It has, uh, you know, expectations that people will follow rules. That's fascism. And that can be traced again to these same thinkers uh, tracing back into the 1960s in particular. These same thinkers are uh, laid down these ideas and they've been festering for 50 or so years and have turned into this.
0: You do something where you have a social justice dictionary um, that I think is really, really important because there's all these new words. And everybody seems to speak them overnight. All of a sudden, everybody's saying this new word, and you're like, "What? What? When did that happen? What? What does that word mean?" Um, uh, and I want to go through. Uh, I want to go through a few of them uh, with you because I, I intentionally did not um, read the definition of these words because uh, I want to see if I can get anywhere even close, and I don't think I can. Um, medicalizing. That is like mansplaining, except to uh, by a medical professional.
1: That's actually fairly close medicalizing is to turn an issue that should not be thought of in medical terms into uh, medical uh, a medical issue and so you could think of a real example and that th- there's a real debate around for example addiction should addiction be treated as a social issue should it be treated as a medical issue is it a disease is it what kind of a problem is it right and so to just say well we're just going to give people methadone and send them home or whatever that would be medicalizing the issue and, and this thus missing the nuance and so there's a real use of this word and then there's the use for as we, as we actually mentioned in fat studies and disability studies where saying somebody is depressed and treating that as a medical issue or somebody's is overweight and treating that as a medical issue. They say that it turns this into a, a, a medical issue when it's really not a medical issue and should not be treated as a medical issue. And then they assert further that this is an, an example of the uh, application of hegemonic power where we believe scientific discourses and don't believe non-scientific discourses and this constrains people and hurts them
0: so responsibleize—that that (laughs) is uh saying that something is responsible that is part of the uh, fascist state or the 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 white uh culture or
1: you're close again so To, again, this is a term that has a real a real legitimate use. The term in its legitimate use means to make a person responsible for something that previously some other entity, often the state, took care of. So if... Uh, Social security went away to sure, responsibilize. Yeah, exactly. you, you have now, to right. uh, the elderly. Okay. Right. But... <laughs> Where we hear these ideas like victim blaming. So somebody has a sexual assault happen to them and we say somebody were to reply, oh, what was she wearing? Right. That makes her responsible for something that shouldn't have happened. So the way that the critical social justice ideology sees it is anything that the system should not be allowing that we then say somebody should take responsibility for. So a more realistic situation is uh, when when maybe on college campuses, maybe just in in broader society, we recommend women's self-defense classes, women learn how to learn. Learn to use a gun, you know, get your carry permit, learn a little basic martial arts so that you can can be rape safe. That would responsibilize the woman. Now, she has to do this extra thing that she wouldn't have otherwise had to do. And if rape just didn't exist because the system didn't allow rape to exist, she wouldn't have to do it. So you've responsibilized her. You've given her responsibility in her life where she shouldn't have to have responsibility. I have to tell
0: you, and again, I go back to evil. Everything this preaches is against everything that we learned was good it's the exact opposite don't have responsibility you don't have responsibility my i grew up in a world where take responsibility for your own life pull yourself you you can the world can throw manure on you all the time but how you react to it is what is going to make the determining will be the determining factor in your life that's no longer That's nonsense. That's that's white power. Well, I mean, to give you an explicit example of that,
1: you're already hearing people suggesting and I've heard several people email me about this, say, even in the context of of their therapy sessions where they've been raped and they have post-traumatic stress over their actual rape and they're dealing with it. And then their therapist tries to point out to them, you know, they say they're raped by a black man. This is a true story. Somebody sent me and they they were discussing it with their therapist in the context of therapy. And the therapist said, well, you have to think about the way systemic racism shaped those uh, those people's lives and so maybe they aren't fully responsible for what they did and you shouldn't put responsibility on them that would responsibilize them. You see it with these new movements now. I don't know if you've seen just in the last few days the idea of considering crime as a social construct. Crime doesn't really exist and if you understood the systems of, of poverty, the systems of racism, the systems of bigotry, then you would understand why people say break into homes and steal things or loot a, loot a, sh- a store or, or you know whatever else right. and so these people can't be held responsible. We saw that literally with the looting that followed george floyd's death people were saying well look at the the uh systemic racism they can't be held responsible for the material conditions of their lives so obviously they're going to turn to these kinds of actions or they're going to turn to crime because they can't be held responsible so saying you know what you 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 need to actually be responsible and not loot a target you need to be responsible and not shoot people that was also under this uh, within the context here of race would also count as responsibilizing people. And so this taps into literally the defund the police and the prison abolition movements, saying that those people can't be held responsible because racism is what made them into criminals. And that calling them criminals applies a straight out of Foucault, a disciplinary term to them that is socially constructed and unfair and meant to just control their black and brown bodies. This is literally the way they use language and think about the world.
0: So the other the other things are genocide exclusion science fascism identity I thought I could uh, like genocide I mean trying to kill everybody of a certain race that's not how it's that's not what that is anymore Well it's that and it's
1: also the idea that you would in some way wipe out a uh, cultural identity so say for example that you were to encourage all fat people to lose weight. There are no fat people. There's no fat identity. That's a fat genocide. Or you were to cure deafness. That's a deaf genocide because there are no deaf people and no deaf culture. Or if you were to, say, um, teach... Say that you have a hypothesis like we see in critical race theory that science is white supremacist. So you were to encourage black people to think scientifically that would take them out of their whatever black cultural context, or maybe it's South African. You know, we can talk about there was actually a movement there called Science Must Fall that said that science was a colonizing way of thinking that was displacing traditional knowledge. And so it would be a genocide of those cultures to teach them to think scientifically. Because those cultures would no longer exist the way that they did previously. So, I mean, p- part of that noble is.
0: Savage all over that. I mean, part of that is we, we should have some conversation. I have a daughter with cerebral palsy. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, uh, however, she's changed me. She's changed. She is a remarkable individual because she has it. It is a, a heavy cross that tears my heart out almost on a daily basis. But should we reverse all, uh, you know, birth or genetic defects? I mean, I, as a dad, I say yes. As somebody who looks at issues and it's a way to make you or the people around you better if you, if you adapt to it, I say No. I mean, so we should have that conversation, but it's we don't have these conversations. They just happen. Right. I don't think it helps the conversation.
1: So, I mean, the, there's a simple line where as, so long as somebody is sound enough of mind to have power of attorney over themselves— they should be allowed to make those decisions. If somebody's deaf and wants to remain deaf, even in light of a technology, they shouldn't right. be forced, correct. to to take it. And if they want to to lean into that culture around being deaf, that's perfectly acceptable. And there's a lot of strength and there's a lot of wisdom, and there's a lot of opportunity to learn and learn more about each other and the world in that. And so it can be made into an individual choice, but turning it into a collective choice, And then to shame people, say if say there was some magic treatment that could could change your your daughter's cerebral palsy and it were to come along and you you brought it to her and said, well, what do you think? And she was like, I want that. I definitely want that. There's nowhere in the universe that it it can possibly be right to try to shame her for wanting that. Mm -hmm. But if she also said, you know, I like who I am. I don't want that. There's all it's not inappropriate to shame them that way either. There's Mm -hmm. only what's appropriate is to give them make the most informed choice possible, which means getting to the bottom of, of objective truths about the situation and then conveying those truths to people and then letting them make up their own minds. That's that's the line. That's what we grew up with. That's the line that actually works. And when you start thinking in terms of collectives, like that, she would be betraying the disabled community right. by choosing right. a different life for herself. Right. That's horrific. Horrific. Let me. And um, then when you do this with theory, that's not even real. I mean, it's even worse. So, um,
0: well, let me let me just leave you with some Kipling here. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, sure. Kipling wrote a uh, a poem called "The Gods of the Copybook Headings." It's one of my favorite poems, and i uh, uh, he wrote it after uh, the progressives uh, and the Fabian socialist uh, really moved on World War one and they tried to make this utopia in Europe, and it just led to all these deaths and um, and he wrote it as a warning for future generations. And it's the gods of the copybook headings are the things that we knew were true. You know, you would write, you know, water will wet, fire will burn. God is good. And you would copy those for your, your penmanship. Um, and um, let me let me just uh, well, let me just pick it up in the middle with the hopes that our world is built on that. They were utterly out of touch. They denied the moon was Stilton. They denied she was even Dutch. They denied that wishes were horses. They denied that pigs had wings. So we worship the gods of the market who promised us all of these beautiful things. When the Cambrian measures were forming, they promised perpetual peace. They swore if we gave them our weapons that the wars of the tribes would cease. But when we disarmed, they sold us and delivered us bound to our foe. And the gods of the copybook heading said, stick to the devil, you know, on the first feminine sandstones, we were promised promised the fuller life, which started by loving our neighbor and ended by loving his wife till our women had no more children and the men had lost their reason in faith. And the gods of the copybook heading said, the wages of sin is death in the carboniferous epic. We were promised abundance for all by robbing selected peter to pay for collective paul but though we had plenty of money there was nothing our money could buy and the gods of the copybook headings said if you do not work you will die then the gods of the market tumbled and their smooth tongued wizards withdrew and the hearts of the meanest were humbled and began to believe it was true that all is not golden that glitters and two and two do make four and the gods of the copybook headings limped up to explain it once more as it will be in the future it was at the birth of man there are only four things certain since social progress began that the dog returns to his vomit and the sow returns to its mire and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire and after this is accomplished and the brave new world begins when all men are paid for existing and no man must pay for his sins as surely as water will wet us as surely as fire will burn the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return yeah that's, uh, is it that's uh oddly prophetic yeah it is um is it and very hard to find i've only found it in one book they've done everything they could to erase this poem i think um is you know the the in your book you talk about the solution and it's it is the solution it is the common sense solution um it is the solution we all have been taught and now seemingly are rejecting. Is it going to take terror and slaughter to return to those things? One hopes not. And I don't think
1: that it has gone that far yet. Um, and we hope that that doesn't come about. But people actually do have to understand what's happening. The, the reason that that poem seems prophetic it's not prophetic. Mm-hmm. It understands. Mm-hmm. It understands the dynamics of a certain thing, and when that thing is put into practice, the the what what is going to co- <laughs> it's, it's the theme of the poem. That which is going to come from that is what is going to come of that. And so it, there's no prophecy there. And uh, is also, of course, the reminder that re- that reality is going to bat last. Yep. And it you 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 can't manipulate the situation to get away from the reliable consequences of bad theory. So we are in a crucial moment and I mean that literally in the sense of a crooks a point an inflection point in history where if the if people can quickly begin to understand what is happening what this ideology actually is of social justice, anti-racism, diversity. These all sound great. The branding is awesome. Black Lives Matter branding is perfect. If you can look inside the box and realize, wait a minute, this is definitely not what we're signing up for. These good things, that it, the, 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 the glitter of the, the not gold is, is not what's really going on here. And people are willing to say, no. Things that work are not inherently racist. Things that work are not inherently sexist. Society functioning is not actually fascist. This is lunacy. And we're not going to play by these rules. We're not going to keep being rolled by this. We're not going to have to keep giving into this. And the mob on Twitter will not make us. Then maybe there's a chance that we can avoid the catastrophe that, that we really don't want to have come as the reset. Um a few people have died. I don't think that it's necessary that any more die. But we have to remember what principles, you know, people need to, I, I, I've gone back and read a little bit again of the Federalist Papers. People need to go read this. People need to understand the Constitution. They need to understand the Declaration of Independence. They need to understand mm. the basic principles of how checking of each by each and accepting the fact that when you lose the argument because the experiment said that your hypothesis was wrong that that's okay and actually good. When people start to remember how we built ourselves out of medievalism, clawing our way 500 years out of medievalism, and then they can see that this theory leads to medievalism again, rooted in uh, something like ethnic Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. They can then decide, no, we're staying with modernity. We're not going back to, to a medieval system. We're not giving in to to these little uh, petty dictators and their fiefdoms. Uh, and we can avoid the violence that will come if they keep pushing.
0: I don't want to take this uh, th- an amazing conversation and um, uh, turn it political uh, or especially leave it political. Um, so you answer this question any way you want. Um, I've heard people say all the time, uh, it doesn't make a difference who you vote for. They're all the same. Um, You know, I'm hearing it's all kinds of stuff. Does does it matter? And you don't have to get into who, but does it matter who wins in this election? Will that will this election uh, change things uh, for the good or for the worse? I
1: generally see no good options in this election. I see no good options. Uh, It will matter and it will matter either way. And I think that um, we have to hope that enough people realize that we are now on a train that is barreling down the tracks and about to shoot off the edge of the cliff to realize that we have to not invest as deeply in the outcome of the election as we are likely to culturally. That said... I'm very worried in particular, and I say this as a lifelong liberal who does not want to be political. I'm very worried about what will happen if Biden wins this election. I'm very worried about it because I see no, I don't see brakes on the train anywhere, but I see the accelerator pedal yeah, over there. And I don't necessarily even see it in Biden himself. I just, I don't. Um, I don't. I, think... I see it in the architecture around him, yeah. and the fact that the that most of this ideology operates administratively, which is why, in some sense, it matters, and in some sense, it doesn't, because even under Trump, even under any other president, if some you know rogue third candidate were to come into the situation and sweep up all of the electoral votes somehow by you know some act of of thought experiment magic, the administration underneath. Is still the, the, the level of like kind of middle management, which is still pretty big at the mm-hmm. federal government, mm-hmm. is where most of these changes are taking place. Mm-hmm. And unless that gets straightened out, uh, there's there's nothing good down this road. That said, as much as I hate to say it, one of the two candidates seems to put up resistance and one of the two candidates seems to accelerate that process. And I'm horrified. I'm horrified because I feel like I can vote for neither.
0: James, I I can't thank you enough for being honest and brave and um, just being who you were meant to be and um, not slinking away in the darkness. Um, These are the times that um, produce the men and women that eventually civilizations build statues um, uh, to remember um, because... While they're afraid uh, and while they may know that no good is probably going to come from my standing up, they do it anyway. And you make a big difference. And uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you feel the same way, um, but I consider you a friend and uh, I'm honored to be your friend.
1: I feel that way about you for sure, Glenn. I, I've said it many times before. I don't agree with you on many things, but I would love it if you were my next door neighbor.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. We'd have a, we'd have great conversations. Yep. Thank you. Uh, the name of the book is Cynical Theories. How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. It's uh, by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. James, thank you. Thanks, Glenn. You bet. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people.